Good morning. It is Easter Sunday. It is a day when we as believers celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate our risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So this morning's teaching, I want to look at Paul's first letter to a church that was located in a city called Corinth. Now, it is now in what we call, well, it's, it's modern day Greece now. And Corinth in Paul's day was a, a very wealthy cosmopolitan city. Because of its location between the Mediterranean and Aegean Sea, Corinth became an important transit point for trade between Europe and Asia Minor. It was also a great centre of, of pagan religion. It was a city that was home to the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and pleasure. In fact, the city became a byword throughout the empire for its moral decay. So if you were to call someone a Corinthian, it would be, it would be an insult to them. Another temple that drew people to Corinth was dedicated to Isis, the, the goddess of wisdom and knowledge. And the streets around the temple would have been full of, of traveling philosophers who made a good living from people who were, who were always looking to hear something new, some new, trendy, up-to-the-minute teaching. Sadly, this same worldly thinking began to infiltrate the church in Corinth. And as a result, some had moved away from Paul's teachings. And were actively engaging, uh, encouraging others, I should say, to follow what they claimed to, to, to be a greater wisdom. That they had a, a deeper spirituality than what Paul taught. And it would have been a, a very easy sell for these false teachers because it was very much part of Corinthian culture. You know, they liked, they were used to, they looked for impressive speakers and they wanted super spiritual gifts for the church in Corinth it was all about the show it was all about hype now needless to say this caused conflict between the church and its founder the apostle Paul and for some in Corinth Paul actually became an embarrassment he wasn't an eloquent speaker he didn't really look the part and his message of a resurrected saviour was causing offence. Now remember that Paul had spent a year and a half in Corinth. The only other city he'd spend so much time would be Ephesus. And he, he worked there. He, he shared Jesus and, and, and people were getting saved. And, and hence the church was established. And you can read about that in Acts chapter, chapter 18. Now, a few years after leaving the city, Paul began to hear reports about how the church was struggling. There was division and sexual, sexual immorality. They were confused about spiritual gifts. And many of them struggled to understand key, basic Christian doctrine. So when we come to chapter 15, Paul has already corrected them on lots of these issues. The final problem, which is which he is now going to correct, is the most important. 
because some in Corinth were teaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. Which shouldn't surprise us because Corinth was a Greek city. And the Greeks, the Greek philosophers, did not teach or believe in physical resurrection. Acts chapter 17, it describes for us how the Apostle Paul travelled to Athens. And he made his way to a place called Mars Hill, which would have been located on, which would have been the location of Greece's high court, a place where government officials, where they dealt with civil, criminal, but also religious matters as well. Paul, he went there, he began to teach, and, and crowds began to listen to him. But their mood changed when he began to explain how Jesus not only died on the cross for our sins, but that he was buried and physically rose again. Acts 17.32 says this, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So you see this, there's uproar at the very moment that Paul mentions the resurrection. And after giving Paul a hard time, the majority of them just turned their backs and they walked away. And again, that's because Greek philosophy did not teach or believe in a physical resurrection. That same attitude had infiltrated the church at Corinth. Now remember, people in this church were bought, were, were saved out of these teachings, saved out of that, that lifestyle that existed in this city. But before we get stuck in, listen to what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 1. And he says, In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, when he had chosen, whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke speaks of the many proofs of Christ's resurrection, and that's exactly what Paul will do in this morning's text. It's a chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. It's a chapter that has been described as one of the most important and crucial chapters of our Bibles. Because without the resurrection, the, the, the gospel is meaningless. And we, you and I, believe in vain. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul opens by reminding them of the message he preached when he came to Corinth. But he didn't just preach Jesus' death and burial. He also preached the resurrection. And as a result, his teaching, which which had the resurrection at its centre, as a result of that teaching, people were getting saved and, and the church in Corinth was established. Now jump down to verse 12 of chapter 15 for a moment. And it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Here Paul reminds them that they were the ones who had turned from the truth. 
They were the ones denying the resurrection. And now in verses 3 to 8, Paul gives a list of witnesses. So he isn't asking for blind faith. Why should he? Because there are hundreds of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And they include Old Testament scriptures and eyewitness accounts. So look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So here Paul speaks about the contents of the gospel he preached. The first truth is that Christ died for our sins. Now listen to what Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 3 verses 23 to 25. And he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Because of sin, all humanity is guilty before God. The payment for which, as Paul tells us in chapter 6 of Romans, is death. That is the payment. And it's not just physical death, but eternal death. Our sin must be punished. God cannot just let his people off the hook, let people off the hook, because if he did, he would no longer be righteous. Yet despite the fact that our sin demands our death, God sent his son to be our substitute upon the cross. And this word that Paul uses here, redemption, can also be translated as ransom, deliverance, or, or to buy something back. And it was a term used specifically in reference to the purchase of a slave's freedom. Paul tells us in Romans 6 verse 17. How you and I, as believers, were once slaves to sin. Sin was our master, and we willingly obeyed. Yet none of us had the ability to set ourselves free, did we? Someone else had to purchase our freedom, paying the price for our redemption. And here Paul tells us how Jesus paid that price. Jesus paid the price for our release from sin and its consequences. Jesus gave himself for us. He willingly went to the cross. He became the sacrifice for our sins, for our redemption. Paul is about to call hundreds of people to the witness stand to testify about Jesus' resurrection. With the church itself being his first witness. Because the church in Corinth would not have existed apart from the gospel. Their own salvation was proof that the resurrection took place. The very existence of the church in Corinth was proof that Jesus was alive and that their sins had been forgiven. You know, when I, when I look to my own salvation and how my life was transformed, you know, that's proof that Jesus is alive because only a risen Savior could turn my life around. Now Paul calls his second witness in verse 4 that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the second time that Paul mentions the scriptures. 
The scriptures he's referring to here are the Old Testament scriptures, which we know are filled with prophecies regarding Jesus' suffering, his death, and also his resurrection. And how his sacrifice was the payment for the sins of this world. So, so where in the Old Testament does it speak of Christ's death? Now, the first piece of scripture I want to look at is from Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. And this was written hundreds of years before Christ. So I'm going to read Daniel 9, 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So I'm going to stop there. In the Old Testament, this term cut off refers to capital punishment. So after a a certain period of time, the Messiah would be executed by the government. And that's exactly what happened. And then I continue in Daniel. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after the Messiah's execution, the city and the sanctuary would be destroyed. Did this happen? Yes, it did. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. They leveled the place. Another example of Christ's suffering is found in Isaiah 53, which is probably the most profound prophecies in, in the entire Old Testament. And this was written over 700 years before Christ's death and resurrection. So the prophet Isaiah declared how, in Isaiah 53:5, how he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus was pierced, nailed to a cross, crushed for our sins, so that we may find peace with God through his sacrifice. Then Isaiah describes Christ's burial in verse 8 of Isaiah 53. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, this is exactly what happened. The Gospels record how Jesus was crucified between two thieves, the wicked. Yet he was buried in the tomb belonging to a rich man called Joseph of Arimathea, a man who was so well connected that he was able to go and ask Pilate for Jesus' body. We see this in Mark chapter 15. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 16 verse 10, once again hundreds of years before Jesus. And, And here David points to our Lord's resurrection. Psalm 16 verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to show, or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus would not remain dead, therefore his body would not see corruption. And Jonah's time in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights certainly parallels David's prophecy of the Messiah in his grave. When Jesus was asked for a sign, he pointed to the prophet Jonah. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 40, he said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days 
and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again. Now, there are many more Old Testament scriptures that testify about the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have the time to cover them this morning. So let's move on. Now, Paul comes to a, a he gives us a list of eyewitnesses who can who saw Jesus, who saw the resurrected Lord. And it's also important to know here that Paul was a Jewish rabbi before coming to the Lord. He tells us in Acts 22, 3, how he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Paul was a student of the great Rabbi Gamaliel. Now this guy, he was one of the most respected Jewish scholars of his day. Paul couldn't have asked for a better teacher of Jewish law. And according to Jewish law, now remember, Paul was, he was a lawyer. According to Jewish law, if you wanted to establish a fact, there had to be at least two eyewitnesses. This comes from Deuteronomy 17.6. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do now. And he starts with Peter. Look at verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, Cephas means rock in Aramaic. A name that's translated into the Greek as Petros, which is where we get the English word Peter. And, and, and because Peter had denied him three times, Jesus knew that he needed, he needed to be encouraged. Then Jesus, we're told, appeared to the twelve. Now, this reference to the 12 was used as a collective term. So it's not implying that all of the 12 disciples were present. And they testified time and time again to the fact that they were eyewitnesses to Jesus's resurrection. Look at verse six. Then he, referring to Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. But some have fallen asleep and others, some, some of these guys have died. Now we're, we're not sure when this took place. It certainly could have taken, it happened at our Lord's ascension into heaven. I'm more inclined to believe that it happened in Galilee. <clears throat> Excuse me. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples when he appeared to them. Matthew 28, 10. He said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, can you imagine the excitement, the joy as, as they traveled on that road north to Galilee from, from Jerusalem? And no doubt they would have spread the good news. Of course they would have done as, as they made that journey. You know, Shannon, Jesus is alive and, and he told us to meet him in Galilee. Come, come and join us. So I'm sure a crowd would have went with them. And as Paul states, more than 500 people saw our risen Lord at one time. Now Paul calls another witness to the stand. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Paul is probably referring to Jesus as half-brother here. And, and James believed in Jesus as his saviour following his resurrection. 
and he would go on to become a leader in the early church. And notice here in verse 7 that Paul also mentions the apostles. Now we know the name of the 12 apostles, but they weren't the only apostles in the early church. And remember that the word apostle actually means one who was sent out. Many people were sent out to spread the good news. We have been commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. Now Paul calls himself calls himself as, as the next eyewitness in verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here Paul refers to his salvation as being strange and, and untimely. The other apostles spent three and a half years with Jesus. You know, what a privilege that was. Paul, however, came to know the Lord um, and he came to know the Lord and become an apostle in a very, very different way. And that happened on the road to Damascus. Then in verse nine, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And isn't, isn't that what Paul got saved out of? He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. In fact, Paul was probably the last person who wanted to believe in the resurrection. And if there was anyone who could have regrets about his past, it would have been Paul. In his first letter to Timothy, he, he described himself as one, as a, as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent against Christ and his people. He wrote to the Galatians about how he violently persecuted the church, doing his, his utmost to destroy it. We see in Acts chapter 7 how he encouraged and cheered those uh, who were stoning Stephen to death. Paul had such a reputation that many within the, in, many within the church in Jerusalem suspected that his coming to faith was just a trick as a way of infiltrating the church. But he wasn't going to allow such memories as a barrier to his relationship with Christ or dictate how God could use him. Because listen to what he says next in verse 10. But by grace, excuse me, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Paul gives God all the credit for the transformation in his life. So he's pointing to himself as proof of God's grace. Proof of Christ's resurrection. And the same can be said for every believer. But it doesn't stop there, does it? God's grace is also relieved in giving us the power to live a different kind of life. In that God's grace should motivate us to live a life of sacrificial service. And that's exactly what Paul did. In that he responded to God's grace through faith in Christ by giving himself in service to the Lord. And then the second part of verse 10, he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that that is with me. Paul worked harder. He he travelled more. 
he established more churches, wrote more letters by the Spirit of God than all the other apostles. So God's grace towards him wasn't in vain, in that it wasn't wasted, because it was the grace of God that enabled him to, to accomplish so much. And then in verse 11, he says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Paul has listed all these witnesses. From the existence of the church, the hundreds of eyewitnesses, to his, to his very own testimony. All of them testifying to the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as believers, we celebrate because Christ has set us free, hasn't he? Free from the people that we used to be and from the things that we used to do. We are now children of God, justified by the blood of our wonderful Saviour, Jesus Christ. And because he has conquered sin and death, we will also live. Amen. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, then I pray that you would invite Jesus into your life. Because God, in his great mercy, offers you a new life through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you want to do that, if you want to receive Christ as your, as your, as your Lord, then what you need to do is admit that you're a sinner. You need to confess and be willing to turn from your sin. Believe by faith that Jesus Christ died for you on that cross and receive through prayer Jesus Christ into your heart and receive eternal life. So if, if, if you would like to do that, if you would like to ask Jesus into your life right now, then pray something like this. Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you are the resurrected Son of God. Please, Lord, please forgive me for my sins and cleanse me by your blood. Jesus, I accept you by faith as my personal Lord and Saviour. Amen. If you've just prayed this prayer or have any questions about this message, I just ask that you please contact me through our church website, calvarywoodford.com. There's a num number of option, options on how you can, you can contact me. Okay, guys, so thank you for listening to this message. Um, church, please, God, we will be back, um, back, with, back with each other soon. And uh, let's let's finish in prayer. Father God, we, we thank you that you make all things new. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. And we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would remind us of your amazing grace so that we would always rejoice in our salvation. Amen.